back to the EXP podcast. I'm joined once again by my co-hosts Luan and Kem, and we have two phenomenal guests with us this week, and we're going to be discussing the topic of marketing yourself as an artist. So I'm joined by Alex Beddoes and Tim Simpson, uh, and I'm going to get Alex to introduce himself first. I suppose uh, oh it. A few. I'm, so my name is Alex Beddoes. I'm a senior environment artist at Counterplay Games, and I'm also the R Station Learning Content Manager. Uh, and on the side, I host the GDD podcast. And we'll throw it over to Tim. Awesome. Hey, uh, yeah, my name's uh, Tim Simpson. I am the Environment Art Director at Counterplay Games. So I work with Alex every single day. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, on the side, I also run a um, like a YouTube channel called Polygon Academy, where I do uh, game industry advice and uh, tutorials, usually based around environment art, lighting, and Unreal Engine. Um, yeah, I've been an environment artist and lighting artist in the game industry for about the last 15 years or so. Awesome. So you guys have both kind of built a pretty big brand outside of the work that you do, Tim, through your YouTube channel um, and Alex through kind of your podcast. So the first thing I'd like to start off with is just kind of talking about how you can kind of create that brand recognition for yourself as a kind of artist or content creator. Uh, outside of the realm of the kind of nine to five job that you guys do. Uh, should we start off with Tim? Yeah. Um, for me, really, like, I always kind of had this idea that I wanted to start building a side hustle. Um, and so you kind of go down that rabbit hole of like uh, all that online, um, you know, rabbit hole, of, like Gary Vee and all that stuff where how, how can you build an online side hustle? And basically one of the themes that kept on coming up was just like start putting out content and help as many people as possible. So I just decided to kind of dive in and start doing that. Um, basically put out as much free content as I could um, and start building an audience because once you have an audience in place, then you can figure out what you want to do with it, right? Like you can create tutorials and sell them. You could do mentorships and stuff like that. But I think a lot of people, they just dive in chasing after money right away. Um, but for me, I was always, you know, the, the solution is to help people first and, and just give as much value as possible. So yeah, I just started creating like environment art creation tutorials, um, filming myself uh, and putting them up on YouTube. Like I'm pretty much, a, you know, a pretty big introvert. So for me, it was kind of unnatural at first, you know, plunk down in front of a camera and it feels super weird when you're recording yourself, hearing your voice in your headphones while you're editing and stuff like that. But for me, it was always like the higher goal of, uh, you know, I'm a self-taught artist. So I wish I had these kind of resources when I was on the come up. So that was kind of like, putting the mission in front of my own uncomfortable, you know, introvert, introverted nature. So for me, it was just basically getting started and following the advice of people that had done it in a bunch of other uh, industries and niches and stuff like that, where it was just over and over again, you just heard put out content. Uh, it doesn't matter if it sucks at first, like just get in the habit of, of putting stuff out and the people that are into your stuff will start to follow along. Uh, and then it just kind of snowballs from there. Does that not harm your, does that not harm your brand recognition if you put out, because if you put out content that isn't isn't good per se not really like i mean everyone starts at at nothing right like of course the content that you put out like 2 years from your first video is going to be a lot better but a lot of people enjoy seeing that that process especially on youtube where like a lot of people they put out the most like ghetto production video where it's just like you know uh, a super old gopro like no proper lighting anything like that but if if the what you're teaching um or the message of your content resonates with people the quality like it can be improved with time right and a, a lot of the thing that stops people from putting out content in the beginning is 
that chase for perfection. Like I, I have to put out, you know, if you're going to make travel videos, they look at someone's videos like Sam Colders. I don't know if you guys have seen the, that guy's travel videos where it's like amazing transitions, amazing color grading. They're like, well, if it's not as good as that, no one's going to watch it. So I, I have to, I'll film a bunch of stuff and then they'll, you know, they'll work on it over and over again, but they'll never actually put anything out. So at a certain point, you just have to be like, look, I'm just going to film something, put it out and get over that initial fear and then just work on improving the quality over time. Um, I think as long as there's something, one or two good nuggets in a piece of content, it doesn't have to be like amazing production value. And you look at the speed of which uh, people put out content on social these days. And it's like, you know, some people put out like two or three posts on Instagram a day, uh, a YouTube video, you know, a bunch of micro content on Twitter. And like, if you spend hours obsessing over each piece of content that people are literally going to consume and move on in about 30 seconds, uh, it's really going to slow down your momentum and your growth, right? Um, so I think there's, there is a fine line between just like, terrible content that doesn't give any value but the quality thing is is really subjective and i think if the the message and the, the core of the content um like for me it's like intending to help people solve their problems like you know with either industry advice or how to do something in unreal it doesn't really matter if like it's not amazingly color graded or i don't have these awesome epic like b-roll transitions and stuff like that that stuff i could add over time um but you look at even like the best travel vloggers or you know people like casey neistat and stuff like that their initial videos and content that they were putting out, you have to almost have that where you just put out this low quality stuff and use that as a, a spring off point and just get better from there, I think. As long as you kind of achieve that goal of teaching someone, right? And you kind of satisfy that like thing that you wanted to do, it's fine, right? Like if, if you get something and you're happy because uh, someone learned something and is, is inspired to do something, I think that's that's good enough, right? I think you've got to get your like frame, like your frame of reference is the important thing. Like, so say for example, with me, I don't care how bad a piece of content is. I, like the whole reason for the podcast, and I've said this plenty of times, was to I just care about me talking to people and me learning as a person. And just a, a nice byproduct of that is that other people enjoy that too. So, like, whenever I think about like the quality of content, I'm like, as long as the conversation was good, or this was good, or it's like a tiny little bit that's you know valuable in there. You know, the fact it's got like poor production quality or anything like that, it doesn't really enter my mind because I'm just like, it was a really enjoyable conversation. I got everything I wanted to out of it. And if someone else does it, if only one person gets, and that's the other thing, I think people get worried about scale as well. Like you've got to start somewhere. And if only 10 people liked the video, it's like fine, but then 10 people found some value in it. Like you can't, you can't shoot for the stars straight away. Like it's a really slow process and consistent. That's the thing I found as well with this is that, consistency beats everything like you could have the most amazing um f- opening 10 episodes of any piece of content youtube channel or anything because you burn yourself out so much obsessing about quality and trying to do something that you're like oh, i'm not going to do another 10 because it's just so much hard work whereas if you can just get your you know a rhythm going what you're doing even if it's like only 80 percent rather than 100 you will win the marathon and you'll be like you know you'll put out 100 episodes rather than 10 because you're just you're able to stay in the race because you're not killing yourself trying to produce like five star quality every single time. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Did you guys learn that through practice? Because you both sound like Gary V at the moment. Who, <laughs> who me and Tim V, I, I like, I love him so much. I always follow his advice. But is that something through just practice? Like, did you perfect? Did you kind of obsess over perfection and then you're like, fuck it, I just need to put content out. Yeah, well, for me, like, I first. Um, Originally, like six months before I started my Polygon Academy channel and actually started putting out content, I uh, I was I was like I knew I had to kind of do this. Um, so I sat down and I scripted out just like 
my intro slash kind of like story of how I got into the industry in a video. And then I sat down and I was trying to like read this script and do it all in one take. And like, oh man, I, I stumbled over some words there. And after, you know, like six hours of trying to do one 10 minute video, uh, I just got super frustrated. And I was like, man, fuck this. I, I'm just not, I'm not, it's not me. I'm not going to be a YouTuber. And, uh, and I just literally shut off the camera. I was like, I know I have to make this stuff, but uh, I don't, I don't know what the process is for doing it. And then the irony is when I was actually six months later, when I was kind of like, okay, you know what? I'm actually going to do this. I just bought, you know, my camera. I'm going to do this art station challenge thing. This it's a perfect opportunity. Uh, and I, I kind of removed that mental restriction in my mind of like, it has to be all one take. It has to be perfect. I was just like, I'm just going to sit down, film it. I can, it, I have final cut so I can edit it however I want. Like, in fact, if you look at a lot of YouTubes, like that jump cut style uh, is actually part of like the whole YouTube culture for a lot of things, right? So I was like, it doesn't matter if it's super heavily edited. I can, because I have final cut, like all the mistakes and tripping over my own words, a lot of that's going to be, no one's ever going to see that anyways. And if I make the video and I don't like it, I don't even have to upload it. Like, but the main <laughs> important thing was like actually making the video, right? So I was like, okay, it doesn't have to be perfect. I'm just going to do it. And I was, you know, decently surprised with the results. Obviously it, it wasn't to the level of an insane production quality that I envisioned in my head, but I was like, you know what, this is cool. I'm, I'm happy that I actually got something done. I'm going to put it up and see if it actually resonates with people. And if people hate on it or they're like, who's this bald ginger? Like <laughs> I can just delete it from YouTube. It's, it's not the end of the world. Right. Um, so for me, that was realizing you have final cut and complete control over what you put out. Uh, gives gave me the freedom to just start making stuff and then auditing as I go of like, oh, I didn't like or that sentence there. Luckily, I have five more takes. I can just edit the one that I like and then, you know, go back and, and maybe even refilm a couple sentences if, if I feel like I stumbled over a point or something like that. And once you kind of just have that idea of like, no one else is going to see all of my mistakes. I'm just going to chop it and put it out in the in the form that I want. Then it's really a lot more freeing. I guess in a way, that's a little bit like deciding what personal art you want to make, right? Like you might make something that is just there for your learning and you might think it's, you know, this is good enough now to put it out and people might like it and off it goes. Or you might just learn something from it and never put it out, right? Like I have so many projects on my hard drive that I, I started like with an idea, oh, it's going to be this big epic project. Oh, I'm going to learn how to use like deferred decals and stuff like that. And then I just start working on the project and then I kind of get the creative satisfaction up to a certain point where I'm like, okay, cool. I'm, I'm kind of done with that project. I don't actually need to finish it. Like I don't have the goal of having a new portfolio piece every couple months or whatever. I was like, I got the satisfaction out of the project to that point that I wanted to. So I don't feel the need to actually finish it because I don't have the, you know, currently my goal isn't to build a brand new portfolio, upgrade my, you know, uh, art station to get a new job or anything like that. So it's not really in alignment with my goals. So if I feel creatively satisfied, I, I'm more than happy to just be like, okay, cool. I'm, I'm done with that. Not everything has to have an end goal of, you know, the world seeing it, right? You can sometimes exactly. just do things for you. Yeah, that's pretty much every single one of my personal projects. <laughs> do it, move on. Okay, it's not going up. I learned what I wanted to learn out of it. I mean, that's how I kind of, I treat my projects is, uh, is you know, I mean, I, to be fair, I'm the exact opposite. I can't, if I start something, I kind of, I'll get it to the point where I've learned what I need to learn and I'll just find a way to put it up online somehow. Like, mm -hmm. uh, everyone always points out, like, oh, they don't really like the outer gas scene, for example, on my art station. I'm like, yeah, but there's a reason it's there. Like, I wanted to show I could do organic stuff. I wanted to, you know, show technical sh snow shaders and really dive into that sort of stuff. And it's like, okay. Even though I could have, people are like, oh, you could have gone further with the environment design. I'm like, yeah, I could have, but I didn't want to. Like, the goal was this. I achieved the goal. 
put it up, I'm done. I don't need to dwell on it. And I, I'm like that with every single project. Like every single one, people are like, oh, you could have done this or you could have done that. And I'm like, yeah, that's a good idea. I'll do it on the next project when I'm learning something new. Besides, um, it's your art, right? It's your project. Oh, it's yeah, like for sure. It's your podcast, so you oh, do right. what you want to put out. Oh, of yeah, course, yeah. Sure. But you are also, like, we we admit, adhere to, like, this is something that's quite interesting about the games industry in general. We are kind of trained to follow certain norms um, because yeah. the games industry has certain rules you have to abide by. So we're, like, we're all naturally trained anyway. And when you're developing a portfolio to do certain things because, A, it resonates with people, and, B, the game industry just expects it. Um, mm. Some for better, some for worse. You know, for example, using, uh, like, a trim sheet, like, you know, it's just expected. You just you should have that on your portfolio. If you're an environment artist, you should probably have an example of a trim sheet somewhere in your portfolio. Um, that's not because you've chosen to like a lot. Of that's you are because you expect it to. You just do it because you want to get a job. It's not like you go wake up one day and go, I want to make a trim sheet. Like it's the kind of thing where like we do have a external pressure to do certain things. But a lot earlier on in your career, I find as well. Like I'm still at that stage where I'm trying to. I guess have a checklist of skills I want to represent. But I imagine someone like Tim, who's got 15 years' experience, he ain't got to prove anything to anybody. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. So one point I wanted to kind of quickly circle back. We were talking about. Um, Go for it. With the whole, uh, you know, maybe you make something and don't put it out. I think there's a big misconception in the industry, especially when you look at a lot of super senior people's portfolios. That like every project that they do goes amazingly well. Then they just post it on our <laughs> yeah. station get a bunch of likes and followers. I can almost <laughs> guarantee you that any super senior artist that you're like ogling their portfolio on ArtStation, there's probably 20, 30 abandoned projects or things that they, they consider mm-hmm. failures that they never even showed the world. And so like, I think that's a big thing is like everyone has this idea when they're first starting out that, man, these senior artists are just, they're so good. They get it right every single time. And I, I think you couldn't probably be more wrong. Like if, yeah. if you got a chance to look at everyone's projects folders on their hard drives, everyone has mountains of abandoned work. Um, so I think that's something that's super important for people that are like maybe in the, you know, in, in art school or trying to break into the industry to hear is like, yeah, you might see a senior artist with, you know, a ton of posts on their art station that are all super amazing. And that's probably because they've been at it for, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. But what you don't see is half of the time when they're just doodling on something and they're just like, okay, I'm trying to learn something. They're trying to learn something, you know, at a certain point, they're probably going to walk away from it too. Not everything is a banger that you post, right? So on that though, I'm just curious to see what you think about this. So with the learning content with uh, Amount to Source for our station, um, one of the things I'm saying to artists now when they're pr- producing learning content is to leave the mistakes in. Um, there's a JRO oh, course. Man. Yeah, because there's a JRO course where Ben Wilson did. And uh, I remember he like, he's doing a substance designer thing and he like he follows a, a, a pipeline for like got at least 20 minutes, 30 minutes. And then he sort of goes, oh, actually, this isn't working. Yeah, this ain't gonna do what I wanted to do for these reasons. Okay, I'm gonna go back to the beginning and like redo it. And I'm saying to like artists, maybe don't show you know real time all of that, but show the mistakes because, like you said, art is not linear. It's not A to B. You know, I start, I do good, I finish. It's I start, I get it wrong, I get it wrong, I get it wrong, I give up, I start again, I try again, gets it wrong. Ah, finally got something I'm happy with. And I'm trying to push on like when we're producing learning content in that that show the human element of being an artist like you do not just go a to b perfect like you i agree so much man like so so much with you when i did the the thing is at the moment you you, you look at learning content like oh the stuff i watched growing like you know getting into the industry it's very much i click this and then this and then this and then this and i Mm. get this and you know the person didn't do that you know they went i'll try this ah shit i ain't quite working 
What if I do this? Ah, that's giving me the results I want. Okay, I'm gonna follow this little rabbit hole now. Like that's the way like you produce art. <laughs> and, yeah, a lot of tutorials people have done it two or three times, right? They've kind of got it down. Yeah, yeah. Kind of almost following a script, which is good because you can see the A to B like the process of like the core skills. But I think like an extended cut where they break down into like some of the mistakes like you were saying would be absolutely awesome because it again it removes that impression for beginner artists of like mm. well they get it perfect every single time like i'm not doing that i must suck and it's it's that's i mean that's one of the downsides of social media too is again everyone's always yeah. posting their their highlight reel their greatest hits like don't take what you see on art station instagram or twitter or anything as face value uh, at all because that's people just I don't know, stroking their own egos sometimes, only putting out the greatest hits. Uh, everyone's managing their own online persona, right, to a certain point, mm. some people more than others. So really, especially when you're young, it's easy to look at that at other people's lives and other people's skill sets and be like, man, they're just so much better than me. But really, there's so much going on behind the scenes that you don't have context or frame of reference for that yeah. you just really have to kind of take that with a huge grain of salt, take what you can learn from it, um, but don't make yourself feel bad if you're not at that level or it seems like other people are advancing a lot further than, faster than you because that's usually not the truth at all. You're only seeing like a tiny fraction of the, the picture of people's lives. So I have a question for both of you then because that kind of comes into the brand recognition side because if everyone's posting like the greatest hits, as Tim says, um, that's your competition at the end of the day. And, and if the majority of your work is just experiments and tests, how do you how, how do you fight for that job that everyone wants? I I, I don't know if it's just me. I don't see anybody as my competition. Like, I see people I can learn. So, for example, when I go into the industry, I mean, Tim would uh, justify this. You know, I contacted Tim. He was one of the first guys I got in touch with to help, like, develop myself. He was never competition. It was, I can learn from this guy. Uh, when I met Jeremy and I met Ben and all these great artists, no one's competition. And then there's people from my own age. Like, you've got um, guys who I'm are pretty like, sure how, I can't remember how old you are. I'm pretty sure we're very close in age. I'm 26. Actually. Yeah, I'm 25, so... So, but, like, we're not competition, like... And it's... Oh, God, I know this is going to sound like some <laughs> bullshit motivational shit from Gary Vee. But you are your own, like, if you're your own competition, it's like, okay, I have things I need to get better at, and I'll focus on getting better at them. Like, my big weakness at the moment I'm looking at is, like, you know, just very simple propping, texture and workflows. But I'm really good at substance design. It's like, and someone else is the exact opposite. And it's like, there's no point them comparing to me because we both have strengths and weaknesses. I really don't like the idea of framing it as a competition. Like we're all in a race, but we're racing our own race. And I know that sounds like, like I said, bullshit, uh, motivational stuff, but I don't, I really don't like, for me personally, I can't frame it as competition. I'm too competitive to start doing that. It's really unhealthy, especially on a team, right? Like you don't, you want a team to work well together and competition does not exactly. I mean, there's a certain degree of like, oh, he did, he did something this good. I want to do something this good as well. But in a team, you want everybody to work well together, and competition tends to kind of bring the worst out in people, really. I'm yeah. competitive from a team point of view. Like, Tim, we're on counterplay. Like, I'm like, I want counterplay to do well. I care about, like, the company. I'm at, I'm at our station as well. Like, I'm a very much, I want my team to do well. I'm super competitive from that point of view. But individually, like, like I said, you've, you've got your own shit to deal with. Yeah, so, so for me, like, when you're in art school or you're leaving art school and you're looking for your first job, I mean, you have to consider it more of like the job market, right? So I wouldn't say mm -hmm. like you're competing directly against other people, but like the market is the market and it will give you feedback, right? Like if you're applying to hundreds of jobs and you're not getting any replies, 
well, then that's the the market giving you the feedback that you're just not ready yet for the industry, right? It, it doesn't necessarily mean that, uh, oh, I'm in competition with my, my fellow teammates um, to get like this one job. It's like, no, like if, if I'm not getting replies, then it's just a clear indicator that I need to work on myself. And once I've brought my skills to that higher level, then the market will respond with feedback of like starting to get interviews. Usually that's how it goes, right? You'll start to get a couple interviews. Maybe you'll, you'll fail a couple and then eventually you'll get a job. Usually once your skills are to a certain level. So, I mean, there is a competitive barrier to entry, but to think of like, in order for me to get that job, I have to tear down on like my fellow students or I have to be so much better than them. Um, there's a lot of other factors that go into getting a job, right? Like it's your personality and stuff like that too. So, and there's so many things that you have zero control over that really you should just be focused on improving yourself. Kind of like what Alex said, right? Like, what can I learn from other people? How can I help other people? Um, because that's a huge thing too. Ever since I started making like YouTube videos and trying basically to help other people, it has massively in a positive way impacted my own career, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of, I think maybe university students think of like, oh, they're looking around at their class and they're like, okay, I have to beat all of these people for that one job. And that's a very scarce mindset to have. And it, it usually, if someone has that mindset, depending on the degree of it that they have, you can kind of get a weird vibe off them, right? Like they're only mm -hmm. focused on themselves. It's like, they're trying to like be the dragon hoarding the gold. They don't want to share their substance designer techniques. They don't want to, you know, help their other fellow students, maybe improve the lighting in their scenes or something like that. Cause they're like, no, well, if I help Jimmy uh, improve his lighting in his environment, then he might actually get that job at EA instead of me. And that's just a, a horrible mindset to go in with in general. Cause what's going to happen when you get a studio job, you're going to be like, well, there's that promotion and there's only one spot. Like I'm not going to help mm -hmm. other members on my team shine right so it's good to be competitive with yourself be like i want to be better than i was you know six months before or a year from now um, so I, I think that that's a great mindset to have but to have an awareness of the overall job market is great but really again just be in a race with yourself uh, rather than trying to tear other people down and you know step on their heads on your way to the top i think is a good way of looking at it and to kind of go back to one of the, what you guys said is like a portfolio full of experimental stuff i think for me if it really depends what your goal is, right? Like you can post a bunch of crazy experimental stuff, grow your art station because you're posting all the time. Like you can grow your follower count. You can get a bunch of interaction going on because people are going to be interested in seeing those techniques. Um, and maybe it's a bunch of half finished stuff, but maybe if your goal is to get a job, you hide some of that stuff and audit your portfolio for three months to be like, this is the best of the best that I'm going to show. Um, and then when you get a job, you can like your portfolio could be so fluid that uh, I think people are really concerned of, I only need to post the best stuff. I can't post this experimental stuff. Or people are just like, I'm going to post everything and then apply for a bunch of jobs. It's really self-awareness, right? You're like, am I putting my best foot forward when I'm looking for a job for someone to hire me and give me money for a very specific set of skills? Or am I looking to grow my audience and just show a bunch of my artistic side as much as possible in the other, you know, the off season, right? I think it's also, it's like, so the way I see it, I know what you mean, like, because people could post all their stuff and like, you know, then it brings the quality of the portfolio down. And the way I see it, it's the way I see my own stuff, is like every single post answers a question to me. Um, like, for example, I post a lot of material art. Every single map all recently has answered a different question. Like, I'm thinking I did the Blender simulation one, then I did uh, using mega scans in the material, then I did Blender um, rubble simulation, then it was like, uh, you know, using ZBrush uh, for like generating whole pieces and I assemble them. Like, Every single one is answering a question. And as soon as you're not answering, like as soon as a piece is not answering a question, then it's purely quality. Like if it's, um, this is not showing that I can do a particular skill or I have this ability, then it's only going to be judged on just how good it is. Like, you know, objectively speaking, 
Yeah. And I think that's a pretty good like way to work out whether you need to trim your portfolio, add to it. It's like, okay, how many questions am I answering? And I, you know, Tim, I know you recruit as well. It's like, matter if you have to get back to somebody to ask a question, oh, how do you know, can you do this? Like, if I don't see trim sheets in your portfolio, just for argument's sake, as a environment artist, I'm like, okay, now I have to reach out to this person. Can I do trim sheets? Can I not? Okay, this is a big issue for us. Whereas if you yeah, answer all these questions, a red, a red flag that you, you know, exactly. you want to eliminate as many red flags from your portfolio as possible mm. when you're looking for a job, right? Uh, but to go back to your point where you were talking about how every one of your projects answers a question, I, I think that's really awesome, especially if in the, say, the ArtStation post, there's multiple images that show like the question, the hypothesis, and the, the route that mm. you got there, and then the final result, right? Like you can put the final result first, but then having like two or three breakdowns that shows your thought process of like, Oh, I was wondering if I could make rubble using, you know, dynamic simulation to scatter about like a bunch of bricks, import that into Substance Designer. And and you show that kind of thought process. That's super interesting for leads to look at because then they say like, oh, wow, this person has, you know, they don't follow uh, just the standard workflow. They f- try and find creative ways of maybe doing something faster or, or better. And uh, that makes them a value addition to the team because they're going to, you know, maybe help find improvements to our overall pipeline and stuff like that too. So yeah, you're right. Having that that question, hypothesis, and an answer, I think is a great thing to show in your portfolio. Um, that's a curious question. This is more of like me just asking you a direct question. Like when you've had a lot more experiences when you're recruiting people, when um, they're showing that ability to go like side, you know, experiment with different workflows, are you do you like abstract that away from the thing they're doing? So say, just use the materials as an example. You see me like doing five or six different workflows and substances like that. Do you go, okay, Using that, like, um, oh, they're they're showing they go off the beaten track and the the usual stuff to do. Do you would you normally abstract that to go? Okay, well, if they're doing that in design, like, they'd probably do that with the other software too. Or do you need to be shown that? No, no, I, I think I can. It, it definitely kind of shows through in the person's mm. like almost like digital personality. They're like, oh, okay, they're they think outside the box. They're a creative problem solver, and that's like one of those HR buzzwords that they you know. <laughs> We're looking for creative problem solvers, but like really that's the best way of phrasing it, right? It's like, oh, this person can find interesting solutions to things. They'll probably be able to come up with something, uh, a solution to, you know, a problem we're probably facing in production without actually, because I find there's a lot of people, uh, depending on their different, you know, years of experience in the industry that can, some people like to coast, which is totally fine, right? Like they can, mm. they want to go in, just do level art. Uh, just, I just want to build environments. I'm very comfortable. You know, I, I, I have a family and all that stuff. Um, which can be, you know, totally fine, at, especially at larger studios. Uh, I, I definitely would never hold that against someone. Like if I just wanted someone, I, I just need someone to build level art and they have a good eye for level art and that's all they want to do. And, you know, we're a 500 person team. I would have zero problem uh, hiring that person. It really depends on the the needs of the team, right? Mm-hmm. If I need someone that's going to be a little bit more flexible and I see stuff like that in, in their portfolio where it's like problem solving, they're not just going to be set and stuck in their ways in their groove of like, well, no, we have to do it like this because this is the way I've been doing it for 10 years. Then, yeah, if it's like a smaller um, to medium-sized studio, especially like, you know, our current team size at Counterplay, uh, we're not like a gigantic 1,000-person team, right? So having people that can show the initiative and uh, problem-solving abilities is a lot more valuable than someone that's just going to kind of execute a very finite skill set. Mm-hmm. Interesting. One one thing on brand recognition, because you guys mentioned it way, way back, and I just wanted to, to bring it back to the present, actually, because you run the Polygon Academy and Alex runs the podcast. Like, how impactful has that been on your, your career? Because I know a lot of students either want to just 
like you said, keep work to themselves or they don't really want to share work that isn't good or it's still work in progress but like i know alex has had a lot of success from the podcast so i guess we could start with you man um so in terms of brand recognition um i suppose that's start with like the objective thing of like you know logos or that sort of stuff um it makes a small difference but it's not really it's like a t- 0.1 percent um i see a lot of people are like, worried about like okay i've got to make brand everything and watermark everything to be like me because that's like yeah, what everyone else is doing and it's like eh, it doesn't make that big a difference like the fact of the matter is your art will speak volumes for itself um but with the podcast yeah it just it like i said though know, it came from really selfish reasons like i didn't expect it to have the effect that it did um i wanted to just speak to people i admired and i looked up to and i wanted to just pick their brains and the podcast was a good like excuse to talk to people um but yeah it's pretty much given me most of my career opportunities you know through the podcast i had um Leonard and uh, Randall on the podcast, and they they ended up working at our station. Um, you know, Clinton on, and then Enrico, and that led me working for Decagon. Um, I'm not going to say you know the counterplay came from the podcast, but I know I had a relationship with Tim already because we've spoken in the past. Yep. Whether or not that had a you know had a factor, I don't know, but it kind of comes back to what it's kind of that. What is what networking is is building relationships with people. I mean, I hate the word networking; it really pisses me off. <laughs> because people just go on fucking LinkedIn and add you and then add connect, that's it. And that's yeah. It. I'm like, yeah, they don't send messages or nothing. That's like, yeah. that's it. the absolute bare minimum and is like literally the equivalent of just clicking the follow button nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. But it's no one tells you that at uni. People just say, look, you need to go to networking events. But like, what the fuck do I do at these networking events? It's building so, a relationship with people. Like, for yeah. example, the meetup we had. Um, having a drink and having a, a laugh and getting to know the person, not the artist, like just a person, you have a genuine connection with them so that when you reach out in a year's time or two years time and go, Hey man, I'm, I'm struggling. I'm looking for some work. And they're like, Oh shit, this guy's actually a really good guy. Okay. I have, you already, you have that genuine connection with them. Mm-hmm. That's what networking is. It has, it has nothing to do with LinkedIn. LinkedIn is <laughs> if anything is worse for networking because it makes you do the wrong things. Things like discord, meetups where you actually speak to somebody and have a conversation that's building relationships and yeah. a lot of the interactions should probably have nothing at all to do with you trying to f- like yeah. fish for a job like mm. everyone I, I said this in one of my youtube videos it's like if you go to like gdc or e3 or something like that and you're just kind of like sitting there listening to someone speak but you're just waiting for the opportunity to stuff your portfolio in their face <laughs> or like be hey you guys hiring can you give me a recommendation like people sense that and it that's what automatically makes people distance themselves from you and it's just this weird vibe and i I know like there's various levels of uh you know like social anxiety and stuff like that in in the game especially in our industry right like i i consider myself a super nerd and i everyone has you know their own weird intricacies of their own personality but i think a lot of people that aren't super social like they just kind of go with the objective of like okay i need to get something from this person to help me right rather than Mm -hmm. i'm just going to generally be interested in this person and uh, whatever might come of it, like I don't have an end game when I sit down and you know talk with Alex or talk with you guys on this podcast, right? Like I'm not like, okay, well this might get me a job uh, doing something somewhere else down the line. I'm like, no, I just want to have a genuinely good conversation with you guys. And to kind of go back to that initial question of like, how has it impacted my career with the personal brand stuff? Uh, massively. <laughs> it's literally, yeah. I, I, I got to be careful about what I say here because it's it's easy to really come off as like, you know, super ego pumped up and stuff, but literally (laughs) a lot of the success in the last couple of years has been directly 
related to just putting out that content because it's almost like, you know, you hear about like passive income online all the time, but it's like passive networking. <laughs> like people, yeah. will start, you'll, you'll go to industry meetups and people will be like, they'll already have a frame of context for you. And they'll, they'll probably like you because they've watched your videos or something like, you know, read your blog or something. And they're like, oh man, you helped me with that thing. And it just opens doors, right? Like while you're sleeping, people are getting to know you passively. And just in terms of like, say some statistical stuff, I would say the amount of like passive job offers that hit my inbox every month has probably quadrupled. So what what do you think that does to me in terms of like self-confidence and just the ability to put myself in a position of if I don't like something at a current job, how much more mental clarity does that give me to be like, you know what, I can step away from something because I I don't have that scarce mindset of like, I'm going to need to find another job, which in turn allows me to be a lot more open and honest at any Mm. job that I'm doing, right? It allows me to, to just act in a way that is in accordance with my own values and stuff like that, because I'm not sitting there feeling like I have to please everyone because yeah, say something goes horribly wrong and I get fired or something like that. (laughs) I mean, obviously that would be terrible, but I'm not sitting there in constant fear of losing my job because I know that, you know, in the next month or two, there'll probably be some other opportunities presented themselves. So that allows me to actually just make content that I want to make for my own YouTube channel, because I'm not sitting there with the end game of like, I need to make a hundred dollars to pay rent. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) so it, it massively impacted my career. Um, in an extremely positive way, but it's only because I went out and started helping other people, but that that's what kind of looped around and increased my own reputation within the industry, right? Like people come up to me all the time or send me messages every single day, like, man, that video really helped me get a job. And do, I don't know, do I, do I benefit from maybe I got like five cents in YouTube ad revenue from that person, but no, like I love getting messages like that. You know what I mean? Like, that's why I do it. Um, and as a side benefit, it has helped me. And that that's something I didn't even really think of when I first started, right? I was like, okay, I, I need to kind of start something because I was self-taught and it really sucks to, you know, have to spend $40,000 on university. So why don't I put something out? And if, if it if it can benefit me, then that would be great. And it, it really has. And I, a lot of people would sit there and think of like, I don't know, I think maybe on my YouTube channel, I'll give you guys some numbers. Like, I think I maybe make 50 bucks a month in ad revenue. So I could sit there and be like, oh man, I'm only making 50 bucks from this. Why am I doing it? Well, <laughs> obviously I'm doing it to help people first off, but to, to a lot of people, they would have that monetary mindset. But when I actually look at the way that it's benefited my career, it's paid off so much more. Like if, if, if just in terms of like salary advancement because of the opportunities that have presented themselves to me, right? So it really is this maze-like thing that if you just start doing it, chances are, opportunities are going to present themselves to you that you never would have had access to or even known about uh, without that initial like push of content that, uh, you know, it costs you your time. So, you know what, it's interesting you say that because it's, uh, it, it's basically like it, a, Matthew McConaughey did a great talk at university uh, where he's talked about, he, he described his mailbox money and it's basically, it's the same sort of stuff that I think Gary Vee spoke about, you know, giving without expectation, but he called it mailbox money. Cause he said, basically I do something because I want to help somebody. Six years down the line, they are in a position to help me. And it's like, I never helped them because I thought that would happen. It's just, I'm helping them because I want to help them. And in return, later down the line, they help me because they just want to help me. And he called a mailbox, but I think it's exactly what you're talking about right now. Yeah, 100%. Like even for a, a super specific example, like I put out a bunch on my, my Gumroad, like a bunch of lighting presets for Unreal for free, right? So I'm just like, you know what? A lot of people are struggling with uh, lighting in Unreal. It's really confusing at first. So here's like three free lighting presets. Uh, that's great. If it helps me build my email list at the same time, that's awesome. But like, just just take it for free, right? Like, And I did a video explaining how to use them and all that stuff. 
I don't know, like sometimes people will give me like a buck or two from like that. Some, it's like some people just like straight up toss me 50 bucks. And I'm like, I'm not mm. expecting any money from that, right? They're like, oh, here's 20 bucks, here's 50 bucks. And it just kind of shows up every now and then. And it's, I, I never in the video, I'm like, hey, guys, give give me money or whatever like that. I'm just like, here you guys go, take it, enjoy. And I guess some people are like, wow, this really helped me out. You know what? Here's like a, a, like a little tip or something like that. And it's exactly mailbox money, right? It's like it, the internet gives you the ability to help so many people at scale. Chances are, if you mm. help enough, like, people are going to be thankful. Uh, like there's a lot of genuinely awesome people in this world that are like, wow, this person helped me. Um, you know, there's a lot of free information out there. Well, it took them the, their time to make it here. Here's like, it's like Patreon. Like that stuff's really taken off because people actually want to support people that are going out of their way to give them value. Right. And a lot of the time it's like, you're giving them so much value for free that a lot of people are just like, Oh, you know what? Here, here's, here's something to help you on your way. And I think that's that's super awesome that the internet has just provided that ability to pretty much anyone to just start blasting out content. And again, like I said, if the content is good and it resonates with people, it'll start to take flight and gain momentum over time. Right. I have a, a little side tangent that I want to uh, go on here. So something that we, we kind of come across a lot is um, either people get into the industry um, and they find that suddenly they're unable to kind of balance the new workload and their personal projects, or they get out, or they're in uni and they're struggling to balance their uni work and doing personal projects, or they get out of uni, the bills come in, they get six months in, they got to pick up a job, they can't balance that job and the side projects. So something I want to chat about is kind of how have you guys managed to kind of find the time to balance that stuff you do in your job and that stuff you do on the side, whether that be through doing art station challenges, documenting your process um, with the Polygon Academy stuff, or like Alex, you're obviously well known for doing tons of personal projects, and uh, you've got the podcast going. Are you, are you saying I spam? Cracking through the job, but that's it. There's a lot of content, and people see that content coming out, and perhaps they they kind of think, "Man, how how." You know, I, I'm really struggling with this. How can I kind of um, get to that level? How can I be balancing this better? So what kind of advice have you guys got for people in that position? Um, I need to think. No, it's, it's, it's really hard because it's, it's really easy to think. So, okay, it, one obviously depends on the person. I enjoy working. I want to, I wake up, I want to work, I want to do things. Um, and that is who I am. And yeah, that's but great. Alex, just a quick interjection. So just for people listening, you do two jobs basically, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And the podcast on top. Yeah, and like I said, I like to work. work. So it, um, sounds, it sounds insane on paper. Yeah, like, okay, yeah, it is. Like, it sounds nuts. It is, but you, the thing to remember is, like I said, this it is not everybody's like that. And I understand, and the real thing you need to like just worth talking about is the fact that there's people feel like there's pressure. It's like, oh, it's it's so great, like working like that and being able to work that merch, and yeah, that's cool. Okay, there's flip side to that, which doesn't get spoken about enough. Is the biggest struggles I have, like say, with my relationship with my wife, is the fact that I can't switch off and I have to work all the time. Like I mentally, I can't sit and watch TV without getting stressed out because I'm thinking about work or whatever. And yeah, great. You know, I'll, you want to work this much. It's not just all sunshine and rainbows. Like it has a serious effect on my personal life. 
that I'm having to consciously be like, okay, I'm going to stop working because I need to spend time with my wife. I need to do relax. I bought a PS4 just to try and pull me away from my PC. Um, so I want to start with this is, yeah, it's great that I could like work a lot and, you know, do a lot of things. And this is all, you know, sounds amazing. There is the flip side that my leisure time is non-existent. And that is from personal choice. That isn't me complaining, but people who are like, oh, yeah, I'm, you know, I want to, I need time to like, you know, play games, relax and hang out with my friends. It's like, yeah, really appreciate that because when you're working, you, your nose is to the grindstone. You don't get to do that. Um, I think it's like the thing to bear in mind with it is there are different types of people. There are those who could sit at a computer for 16 hours. And like, I'm, I'm one of these people. I'll sit at my computer for 16 hours, but I'm not working for 16 hours. I'm working for probably like eight, nine. Either I'm like, either are in between like answering an email or like chatting to someone on Discord or watching a YouTube video. There are other people though who don't do that, but when they're at their PC, they're on focus mode. They're going to crank out some work and they're going to be really efficient. And that's where the choice needs to be made by people who look from the outside looking in. What type of person are you? Can you sit at your PC and work for long periods of time? Not necessarily efficiently, but you'll you'll you know you'll do a marathon. Or do you get to your PC and it you know it, right, it's go time. I'm gonna work my balls off here, I'm gonna really crank out something good and I'll you know, and then you call it done and you do a solid couple of hours. That's the decision that needs to be made. And that's where that's you probably get our answers. It's an interesting look. Yeah, so my two cents on that would be like pretty much what you just described is developing self-awareness, right? So mm. this is actually something that I struggled with for quite a while. Um, so basically, long story short, when I got my first industry job, uh, I didn't do any personal projects for about probably three, four years. And at first, for like the first year, I felt super guilty. Uh, I was like, I looking, I was watching, you know, people on Polycount constantly posting new projects and stuff like that. And I, I quickly came to realize that the way that I work is I have a certain amount of creative energy and like juice in the tank, right? And I think this is with a lot of people, especially once they get their first studio job, they work eight hours a day doing creative work, right? But they still have this, by looking at art stations, seeing people po constantly posting awesome work, uh, they, they, they feel it kind of goes back to that competitive thing where people are like, oh, if, I, if I'm not doing artwork, I'm, I'm going to get, you know, I'm not going to advance my skills as an artist. And I think it's, you really have to find that balance. Cause for me, once I kind of realized that about myself is like, you know what, I'm, I'm happy doing eight hours a day of creative work and then I'm done. I just want to go home, play video games, hang out with my friends. And once I kind of realized that's how I worked for that, for that point in my life, I was a lot happier because I, I didn't have this self-imposed guilt in the background at all times. You know, I was like, you know what, this is where I am in my career and I'm, I, you know, I'm doing good work at work, but when I'm at home, I want to, you know, kind of enjoy my, my time. And so that I've, I've kind of over time developed that self-awareness for myself where nowadays, yeah, I haven't put out a Polygon Academy video in maybe like a month and a half, two months. And that's because I'm super busy at work right now, right? <laughs> like we're in the heat of production. And part of me originally, like when I first started doing YouTube videos, it's like I have to put out a video like every week or something like that. And then I, re I quickly realized if I just brute force it, I'm going to burn out and then the whole project will just implode. So it's better if I take breaks as needed, like take my foot off the gas on certain certain aspects of my life um, that allow me to really focus on kind of what's important in the moment. Like say I was a, a student and I, I was looking to get into the industry, then yeah, I would probably really kind of push a lot more of my energy into developing my portfolio and consciously make the sacrifice to like turn off Netflix and turn off the PlayStation for a while, right? Because my goal at that point would be 100% to get a, a job as soon as possible because you, know, you want to start your career and stuff like that. 
but again, once I got that initial job, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm in the industry. I can, you know, work on the projects and get creative satisfaction from that. That's, that's fine. Uh, so it's really just developing that self-awareness for yourself. Because if, if you try and go pedal to the metal uh, nonstop, um, a lot of people will burn out like that, right? Like, I'm, I'm sure, Alex, That's it sounds like you developed that awareness. Where you're like, oh, oh, shit. Like, I can't 100% go crazy all the time. Otherwise, it's going to impact my, my relationships. And I need to, I need to sit, sit down and play PlayStation. Like, you, you developed that awareness, right? By seeing what was happening um, rather than just being completely blind to it, which some people do, right? They let it kind of just everything else fall apart in the background. Well, we're so, talking about two different things here, aren't we? Because we're, like, we're, like, we're talking about when we're in the career. And then we're talking about like yeah pre pre industry, and it's like also we're it, you are a person like it's not like yeah. we're one dimensional. It's not like, like we're just you, a pen and a keyboard. You're not just an artist, right? Like you know, yeah. like, I, I have to be a Terminator pumping out art at all times. Like it's okay to take <laughs> breaks and stuff. Like it's it's developing that that internal gas pedal. I find, and if if you just smash it to the floor nonstop, the engine's going to explode. Mm. So it's and I, I find having a clear goal of like six months to a year like what is what is i want to achieve in the next six months to a year then your actions can yeah. kind of map to that a bit more right like in the beginning i was like i really got to get polygon academy off the ground now it's like steadily growing over time um i would love to put out more videos than i do obviously but if again if i was to do that nonstop, i would burn myself out and the whole project would collapse and then in the long run it wouldn't help as many people so it's also like i think being able to re- be honest with yourself to reassess goals like so for example when you haven't got a job but you're looking for a job in the industry, yeah, bad news. You're probably going to have to, you know, put your face at the grindstone a little bit and really crank out work to get that job. Once you get the job, like, look past the hard skills. Like, for example, with me right now, it does my art production skills. Like, they're going to passively improve anyway. Like, by working around great people, by surrounding myself with the right kinds of guys, is like, I am going to passively improve. Okay, so what do I actually need to improve on? So some of the stuff I'm looking at is like, say, procedural tech. That's like a hard skill I'm improving on. But there's other, there's other skills, like you are more than the hard skills. Like I'm trying to work on, I'm very conscious of how I interact with people. Um, this might be from some time of Deco and of leading, but it's like being aware of how I interact, how I come across, both in the community and professionally and you know, with guests. It's like you are not just the, the mouse and the keyboard and the pen. Like, you have your job is far more complex than that. So to narrow yourself down to, okay, how good is my art and how good can I paint something in ZBrush? It's like your job involves 60% more than just what you're doing on objectively on your screen. How do you interact with the team? How good are you at like taking feedback? How good are you at like allowing people to take work? So one of the big things I struggled with is I early on in my career was trying to take on the burden of the task from everybody else, help everybody else. And like, I'll do, I'll try and do everything and support everyone and then when people offered me help it's like no no i i had like this ego of being like no i can fix this problem this is on me i'll fix it and like as i've I work with people it's like actually there are people who are better than me at some stuff and as soon as you're like happy not being the best of stuff it's like someone comes along and goes oh actually i know a way of doing that i can help with that yeah sure take it and i'll focus on what i'm good at on this bit and that's not that's not a hard skill. That's not me working out a technique in ZBrush or a technique in Substance Painter. That's my people skills. And it's kind of frustrating, like, once you're in industry, how much that gets overlooked. People focus so much on the how good their art is rather than how good an artist they are. Like, I was yeah. speaking to a friend, and he said some of the best artists he knows, like, the, the really fantastic people, are not good game devs. 
and there's a difference. Yeah. A good game dev is, can work at the team. They can, you know, they have all these soft skills. They may not be the objectively strongest artist, but they're a much better game dev. And to me, that's more important. That's the stuff I'm starting to become more aware of. So what you just described is pretty much uh, my transition into the art direction role has been a huge <laughs> eye opener to that. So, okay, so you, I, I used to be a, a you know a level artist and a lighting artist, right? Um, so for me, it's all about, okay, I want to make the, the best level artist possible and transitioning more into a leadership role is you really have to start letting go of, of, I want to do it all myself. And basically my job is to get the best end result of, uh, is to help get the best end result visually for the environments in the game. Right. So technically I should be hiring or looking to hire people that are actually better than at those skills than I am. <laughs> so <laughs> It seems counterintuitive because people think oh, I'm going to hire myself out of a job, right? It's like no, my my job is no longer moving around objects inside the editor. My job is, you know, helping to manage the team, uh, giving direction and feedback, uh, making decisions. And the my my one of the things I first struggled with when I was kind of getting into this role is the idea of like, oh man, that needs to be fixed. I just want to get in the editor and fix it myself because you know there's that voice that says, oh, you could do it in ten minutes. Like just go get in there and do it. But it's actually better if I take a bit more time and tell other people how to fix things or why, more importantly, why it needs to be changed mm. and fixed, because that's going to help them develop better as an artist. And that is exactly what is in more in line with my current job description. And as you move up the ladder, like for me, it's kind of about also doing what you enjoy, right? For me, I don't actually enjoy modeling that much. So it's really inefficient for me to spend a lot of my free time studying modeling because I say I see an amazing hard surface model on art station and i'm like oh i guess i better be an amazing hard surface modeler i don't actually enjoy it i enjoy the human interaction side of things like the macro big picture that's why i transitioned from environments to lighting right constantly going up that uh macro impact scale because you know it you can spend time placing a bunch of props and stuff in the the level art thing but you can have a larger impact when you're mm -hmm. doing a massive lighting pass on the scene right and then now moving up the the ladder again into kind of telling or helping other people assemble those pieces of the puzzle uh, themselves gives me a bit more of a uh, macro impact on the overall visuals of the game again, right? So it's kind of in alignment with what I actually enjoy doing and learning to let go of the stuff that I don't enjoy as much. And and ironically, that's by helping other people that enjoy doing those things. Like, like Alex said, they, they might enjoy doing the things that you don't actually enjoy doing as much. Um, and being okay with that, not having to be like, no, I need to fix it myself, but actually being like, hey, uh, you know, Sally is really loves modeling. Well, I, I don't no longer have to try and fix this model myself. I can be like, this person's way better than me at modeling. Take this and go fix it, please. And uh, the results are usually infinitely better when you don't just try and bash your head brute force against the wall doing things you don't actually enjoy. You definitely have to let go of pride a little bit, right? Yep. Like, um, you have to do that on day one. <laughs> day, <laughs> day one of your job. Not only letting go of pride, but also being uh, developing the ability to have faith in other people instead of having the ego to be like, I'm the only one that can do this and fix it. It's like, no, you know what? We hired these people on the team for a reason, like put it in their hands and gently, you know, nudge them in the right direction here and there. But being having the ability to let go and be like, it's probably not going to 100% be the way that it was in my brain. Um, but they are sometimes you get happy accidents where things come back looking even better because they have, you know, a specific eye for a certain way of working and you get happy accidents and results that, yeah, it's not exactly how you imagined it, but Hey, this actually looks even better. That's awesome. And that, that 
only really shows up when you don't super micromanage people and and kind of give them that that breathing room to be creative on their own. So that was yeah. that was a huge learning point for me too. Absolutely. I actually have a question about something that we were just talking about like about five minutes ago. Um, you know, a lot of this is about self discipline, but how, we all struggle to get creative sometimes, right? It's not like we can just switch on the creative mode and we can just make anything. I know some people are like that, but have you found that there's anything um, that you can do uh, that just helps you sort of get into that groove of, of work and sort of just get your mindset into this sort of, I can now solve these problems, I can push this art further, rather than just like looking at it and going, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do here. Is there something that you found that works well there? Uh, I think something that works for me is, and okay, so there was, there was someone on a Joe Rogan podcast a lot like last year sometime, and he was talking about meditation and what meditation is. And meditation is you sorting through your mental inbox all the things you need to do and all the things you need to figure out. And I found, so I, I have two dogs or I'll take them for like a, a half hour, 40 minute walk in on, on my lunch break or the beginning of my day. And essentially I use that time. I don't, so I, I never drive or walk around with music. I always just have ambient noise because you sort of through your inbox in your head. Like if I have a design problem, like exact, in fact, today, like I was having a design problem and I'm, I'll just go on a walk and I'll just think about that problem. Like, and I, I'm not on my PC. I'm not staring at a blank, a blank canvas. I'm walking. Oh yeah, I could do this and that could fix it. And I actually, oh, actually that person mentioned this. And because you, you're not listening to music and you're not like, your mind isn't occupied by things. You're just walking. I found it's very useful for me to just remember things that someone suggested. I could think about a problem and it gives me time to breathe on it and marinate on it. I find when I'm staring at a screen, there's nothing worse when you're staring at a problem and you just, whilst they running around UB4 engine, trying to figure out, how the hell am I going to do this? Getting away from your PC and just think, like have a clear mind and being able to just think helps. And I mean, it's not meditation. Walking my dog is clearly not meditation. I'm not saying it is, but it serves the same purpose. I'm searching, yeah, I'm filtering my mental kind of Same kind of uh, experience standing in the shower. Like that for me, that's, yes. I'll just be zoning out in the shower and like things will kind of come to me. Um, for sure. Doing it, it's by stepping away, sometimes things will just kind of come out of left field for sure. We can explain the problem as well. Like devs, programmers do this a lot. I had a, um, at Live 5, uh, our dev manager. I used to rub it up for him quite a lot. Um, I'm not a dev. I'm a moron when it comes to programming. But I would speak to him and he would, he'd explain problems to me. And I'll just sit there and nod along and I'll go, and I'll try and like probe questions into it. But he'd just explain the problem to me. And by him explaining and articulating his issues and why he's having his issues, quite often solved it. So I know, I know, for example, with me, I'll just, and, okay, this is sound really bizarre, but like, explain the problem. Like, I don't think it explain it verbally, articulate what the problem is, and sometimes that helps, sometimes it doesn't. But just talking to people, like, I found really helps me kind of sometimes see things, see things from a different perspective. I know, for example, with um, Tim, I'll send him a screenshot, like, okay, I don't get what to do with this, and he's like, oh, okay, I get what you're trying to do, but what about this, this, and this? And I'm like, oh, I didn't feel like that. All right, I'll try it and I'll just sort of have a fumble around and say, like, oh, actually, this is working. And that ability to like communicate the idea and then have someone feed it back to you in a different frame, like frame of reference, is it'll, it helps get over most barriers I find. Uh, there's very few barriers I find which aren't solved by that. Mm. Yeah, getting, especially getting over that fear of appearing stupid too. <laughs> like, yeah. you know I mean? oh, like, like, oh man, if, if, if I say something or show something like that, I 
that I have questions about or, you know, I'm not quite sure about. A lot of people have that fear of like, they're going to think I don't know what imposter syndrome, right? It's like, Mm. they're going to think that I don't know what I'm actually doing. Whereas, whereas actually to me, that is a, a great strength because a lot of times you get to a solution a lot faster and just getting out of your own way. You can kind of be like, Hey, I've, I've got, like I asked, you know, uh, my buddy Lincoln, I'll ask him questions all the time. And I'm not like, usually you, I have that rapport with him. Right. But even to other members of, you know, uh, random people on YouTube comments and stuff like that, they'll, I'll pose them questions or it, it, you really got to get rid of that fear of like, if I ask something, it shows that I don't know what I'm doing. And it's going to reflect badly on me. Um, yeah, so that that's that one's huge for sure. Like getting over that initial fear of not seeming like an expert 100 percent of the time. Uh, also, for me, sometimes I, I kind of I've been playing around with this theory in my head, kind of like I'm I'm kind of calling it the I'm just gonna, and that's that would be like say you're having a an issue building some level art or something like that. You like don't know what to do with the space. If you sit down and and be like I have to figure this out right away, yeah, you're gonna probably have that mental block. But what, one of the things I like to do is to be like. I'm just going to sit down and just dabble for like 10 minutes. It's going to be completely throwaway. And there's, it, that almost tricks me mentally into like having zero pressure on myself. I'm like, man, if I don't like it, I'm just going to throw it away anyways. Like whatever. I'm just going to put on some music, do some really stupid stuff, move, move things around in ways that they shouldn't be even considered used in the editor. And sometimes you'll actually come up with really creative solutions. And then all of a sudden it's like that 10 minutes of I'm just going to turns into like a flow state of two hours and the problem's magically solved. But by taking that in, almost like chopping down that mountain of a problem into a molehill of like, oh, I'm just going to figure out some, you know, little creative maybes. Like they're, they're, I might deal with 10 little maybes in the next like 20 minutes and it's going to be super sloppy. And uh, it just helps alleviate that pressure of like, I have to get it right the first time. And so it's, it's I'm just going to, I'm just going to dabble. You know what I mean? And like, it just takes all of that pressure off your shoulders and usually it allows your brain to kind of decompress and you'll find a solution with a happy accident. I've definitely found that helps me like quite a bit, like just, just try something, anything. And, you know, it kind of just helps you kind of get a little bit more creative and, and take the, take what you need to take further. That's, that's quite a good. Uh, yeah. Good especially especially if that. you have like a problem that's kind of persisting, maybe from the, like the previous day's work, uh, you know, you're thinking about it at night and stuff like that, just building it up and building it up in your head. When in reality, the solution is probably not that huge of a deal, um, mm. but you, you kind of, because you're sitting there, you you know you left it in a state maybe that it's not uh, that you're not happy with it. It kind of just grows and grows, and it seems more and more intimidating. Um, so actually, it's not the problem itself; it's the sitting back down with like kind of like the writer with like the blank page or something like that. You know what I mean? Like sitting down and actually that first that's that's why I said I, I'm just gonna for ten to twenty minutes because that once you get that past that initial 10, 20 minutes, you usually get into a state of flow pretty quick. And uh, that's that's the important part, right? And then you're almost on autopilot. So it's it's not necessarily the problem itself. It's your perception of the problem and the scale of uh, importance and impact that it has as opposed to how it actually impacts. That leads quite nicely onto something I wanted to talk about where um, a lot of people kind of could get into their own heads and... Uh, they end up holding themselves back either through comparing themselves to others or um, just kind of falling into these different um, pitfalls of thinking of not like you were saying about trying to brute force a problem rather than um, maybe doing something else for that, for that time instead, you know, instead of, of trying to hard force your way through an hour of, of fixing this, you could maybe go, Hey, let's just go and do this other thing that he's doing and I'll come back to it. 
and maybe in the process you come and think of it, of of something but there's kind of a lot of these little pitfalls um and i was just kind of wondering if you guys had any sort of advice to throw out to especially kind of newer artists or people who are um you know looking for that for that first kind of into the industry or starting out who are kind of very much in their own heads and uh falling into those kind of common traps of overthinking um what are some of these things that you've seen or either through uh communities you've spoken to online or perhaps like youtube comments that you've seen come up um or you know what messages have people given you about this kind of stuff and what advice have you given or what advice do you kind of have for people to kind of get get around those things hmm. yeah i got i got a point on this on like the whole comparing yourself with other other artists so i think comparison can be good but there's i kind of think of it in two ways of comparison there's objective comparison where say maybe you take a bunch of screenshots from a current gen game and you know you're building your portfolio you're like okay this is the the target i need to hit uh, how can I reverse engineer it to get there? What's the difference between, you know, someone has a really high-end work uh, and and mine who I'm maybe, you know, struggling to get my first job, right? If you can kind of objectively look at that comparison and be like, okay, the materials and lighting are better in this environment. Okay, cool. I need to work on my materials and lighting versus like an envious comparison where it's like, oh man, that person got so good in, in like, you know, six months or two years and uh, now they have a job in the industry and that's what I want. Like, and then sitting and fuming on that, that you're not improving as fast or you're not making as much money as someone or, you know, they have these skills that you want and just stagnating on that. And that's what is making you depressed versus stepping back and having a more objective comparison and being like, okay, uh, they, they do hard surface models. I do hard surface models. Maybe their shape language uh, in their models is what is making it more visually appealing. Okay, that means I need to study up on shape language and that's how I'm going to get my work to there versus just sitting there and being like, well, they're just a better artist than me. They're more talented. There's usually an objective reason why behind someone someone's work that you consider better than yourself is has gotten there. So again, you just don't see the behind the scenes of that person's development. You just see their greatest hits, right? So you kind of need to learn how to reverse engineer things in an objective way rather than an envious way of, oh, this person is just better than me. Oh, they they got there faster than me. Like I must, I must just suck. No. You just need to look at it from a different angle and uh, be more objective and less emotional about it. Yeah, because you can always think of it, I always think of it as a reference, like reference that don't compare them. Like, so I, I, the analogy I come up with is like with materials. If I get shown like a concrete texture, like a photograph, and like, we need this, and I make it, I don't compare my material to theirs and go, oh, why does that look so real and mine doesn't? Oh, this sucks, man. I want it to look that good. Why does it not look that good? Instead, you go, okay, I've got my material and I've got the photo reference. Why is that? Why is that? Why is that believable? Maybe it's to do with all the grunge reads. Maybe it's to do with um, the the micro noise. Oh, that's actually quite simple. There's not a lot of noise in that. It's quite a simple detail. Okay, maybe I need to think about that then. It's like you referenced you reference what you're looking at. You don't sort of beat yourself up over it. And that's how I always. That's the analogy I always come up with. It's like you ref, if you create a prop, you reference the prop. You don't compare your prop to the real life thing because you have limitations on your own thing compared to real life. And that's how I always, like, sort of, in my head, kept myself from getting like that. Because early on, like, between the ages of, like, I'd say 20 to 23, 24, I was, a very, I was in what Tim was describing, that envious stage of, oh, for fuck's sake, why is that guy got a job? I can model and I can texture and I'm not getting any interviews. Like, this sucks. Why am I not getting this? I can do everything anyone else can do. And I was in a very arrogant place. And it wasn't until... Um, I had the portfolio review with Jeremy and I watched Jeremy like as a senior artist still learning. And I was like, 
huh, okay. Maybe I'm not actually, maybe I'm not as good as I think I am. And a lot Dude, of it is to do with that point is huge. So huge. Sorry to like interject, but this, yeah, I, yeah. I got to talk about this. The amount of like, especially even myself, in, there's, I find there's like that ego fluctuation of like, I'm so good. I suck. Okay, I'm good. I suck. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, when I first became a junior in the industry, um, I was like, you think you're hot shit all of a sudden, right? Or like, mm. oh, you start to get job interviews. You're like, hell yeah. Like, I'm just as good as everyone else. And like, oh, oh man, I'm I'm ready to become like a lead or something like that. It's my first year in the industry. And if, if this lead quits, maybe I'll get that job. And it's like <laughs> that overinflated sense of, of like, uh, you know, like ability. And then that usually- It's in man. That's, that's what it was for me. It was yeah, and a lack of patience. Um, but that, that, that point you have of like, a lot of people that aren't in the industry have this idea of like, I'm just as good as those people. Why do mm. they have a job? And it's like, well, there's a million other factors. Maybe like, uh, because you have that attitude, it comes off like that in interviews and people think you're, again, super, like you just said, that arrogance, right? Like suddenly it, people can sense that, um, that sense of entitlement and arrogance where it's like, maybe you're not quite as good as you think you are. But on the flip side, a lot of people have the, that mindset of like, I totally suck. And they, you know, it's, it's like a wavelength almost. Uh, and I think a lot of people they just have to go through that process when they're when they're learning. Uh, there's going to be those highs and those lows, and the the longer you stay at it, that kind of like crazy oscillating scale just kind of like gets down to more of like you know there's still some subtle oscillations, but you kind of figure out who you are and where you're at, and those highs and lows kind of start to become just a more of like self confidence in your abilities, and the arrogance and ego kind of start to go away after a time hopefully portfolio like so this is what it ended up being with me for the so through 2018 and like early 2019 it was very much like okay i still had a bit of the arrogance in my head but i was like okay i know i could do this this and this and i look at my portfolio and i'm like my portfolio doesn't show i could do that like that's the big thing for me it's like you may know how to do everything like you may know just as much as the next person but to an employer do you show you can do that like there's plenty yeah. of artists i know who are far, far more knowledgeable than me, more talented than me, but they haven't actually demonstrated that in their portfolio. So when they're like, and I'm, there's a, plenty of guys who are like this, who are you know, very um, envious or like, oh, why, why why is Alex working for our station? Why is he not seeing the position of the fucking counterplay? This is bullshit. Like, I, I can do that stuff. It's like, yeah, you probably can, but if you put the effort in to show yeah, you can do it's that. Not, it's not what you know, it's what you can show you. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. What you know you can do, it's what you can show you can do, especially when you're just like cold calling with a portfolio to a studio, right? Like they don't have any yeah. context behind you or what you can actually do. And again, that this kind of loops back to our whole discussion is like the more stuff and documentation that you put out of building mm. your own personal brand online, now studios don't even have to second guess they, like a bunch literally how i got my job at counterplay is the heads of the studio had come across my videos and they were like oh this guy really seems to you know be passionate about what he, it shows passion so that was one thing they're like he's really passionate about what he's doing he seems to be an expert in these you know a b and c things cool it, it just makes sense to reach out to that person right so yeah it, it just demonstrates a depth of knowledge the more content you put out and, and that that mm. part is, is huge too right so i i exactly and and to kind of counter that i've worked with a bunch of people in studios that haven't updated their portfolios in years and i know they're a badass artist but say there was like another crazy economic collapse and a bunch of studios ended up closing their portfolio isn't up to date right so for them to cold call like their their only hope is to have friends at other studios be like oh you're laid off like here's a job and like mm. totally fingers crossed right and i think 
that's a good reason why you should have an up-to-date portfolio when you're still working in the industry. Like maybe, you know, every six months do a personal project. Again, self-awareness, like if you don't want to do that, then whatever. But don't be surprised then when, if there's a mass layoff that you're struggling to get work because your portfolio doesn't show the last five years of skill development. But with that though, do you think that's the, so I, was, I was thinking about this, so I was listening to a, um, a, a Jordan Pearson lecture and he's talking about like jobs and careers. In my mind, I have a career and I think you do too, in terms of this is not just like, it can't for your whole life be nine to five, finish and do Like there's people who treat this as a job. Yep. They they get home and they're like, they don't even think about work. They don't think about their career. Like I've got my first job. Like you said, we could I could just noodle along and do environment art. And I'm really happy with that. And it's like, yeah, we need them people. But then yeah, there's those who are like, they want a career. That, that's perfectly fine. Like that's, yeah, that's exactly. That people have a lot of misconception with it, right? Like, mm. like I said, if you want to work your eight hours a day uh, at a studio and go home and be super happy with your family and just, you know, go mountain biking, go skiing, do whatever it is like you enjoy doing. That's like mm. totally cool. Like, like some people, that's how they find their balance in life, right? It's that self-awareness of like, man, I, I don't just want to be an artist. I want to be a scuba diver. Like even for me, I want to be a, you know, a scuba diver, a snowboarder. Uh, I love going backpacking and traveling the world. Like, so usually at the end of a project, I'll take a month or two off and just not do any 3D stuff and just, well, it's just cool. months, right? you, you need them. You actually need them people in the team. Like you can't have everybody be the maverick, crazy idea new pipeline person you need them people who are workhorses who will come in and they'll just work and buy into a vision and do it like you need both of them you don't you can't just have a team full of like career people and you yeah. can't have a team full of job people you actually it's not just a case of oh it's okay to be like that we actually need them people and the funny thing is it usually most studios that have uh that tends to balance itself out <laughs> like just naturally over time like the, the people that want to like really go at it are going to go at it. And the people that maybe think they want to go at it and then aren't actually happy doing that, they'll just kind of fall into their mm-hmm. group and start, you know, enjoying their work. And like I saw a discussion online um, the other day about someone that was kind of like really high up on the art scale and feeling like they almost need to be forced into maybe like a leadership position and stop doing art. But my response to them was like, if you don't actually enjoy not doing art, why would you do that? Like it's sometimes mm. it's cool to just do what you enjoy. Right. So you do, there's, there's a lot of external pressure in, in almost any industry to rise to a certain point uh, in your career where you're going to eventually completely change your skill set from what you actually started out doing. And for some people that's great. And for some people that's like the, the chains of doom, right? Like moving into a, an office and, you know, not doing art and stuff like that. For some people that's, they're going to burn out that way. So I mean, again, that, that happened with me. I spoke about on the game I took is like I with Decagon I got I got offered a lead role and I took it for all the wrong reasons. It was like I in my head I was like, this is gonna advance my career rather than I actually want to be a lead. And obviously I learned I mean it was a great time and I learned a great deal from it, but looking back in hindsight, I was like I that was a bad move because the stuff you're talking about, like I didn't enjoy just managing people. I hated it. I wanted to work as an artist and like this is the happiest I've been in my career for a long time. Just being able to just focus on making art. I'm not worrying about like, and I know this is your problem, so it probably sounds bad. It's like, I'm like, you know what? This is for you to do. This is your job to like worry about the whole big picture of things being done and on time and to equality. I'm like, I have my area. I'm responsible for it and I'll make sure I do it to the best of my ability. And if you come along and go like, oh, actually we've got this other area. It's like, yeah, okay, I moved to that area. Whereas, yeah, when I was, when you're leading, it's like, 
you're not really doing the thing. Like you said, you can't go in and fix the things yourself. You have to enable everyone else to do it. And I, you know, looking back, I wasn't ready for that. And I took it for the wrong reasons. It's yeah. exactly what you're talking about now. Exactly. Like my, my overarching goal for the last few years is like, I've started to realize that, you know what, I've got enough years of experience as like a, a level artist um, and all that stuff that I've kind of got that creative satisfaction. And mm. I was starting to feel that kind of like coasting kind of mentality. I was like, you know, what? I, I, you know, that's not for me. Like that's how a, a great way for me to become depressed and burnt out. Like if I'm not feeling challenged, like some people really mm. enjoy that. But for me, I'm like, this is a recipe for disaster. So what can I do in, in a career to me that's going to be a bit more interesting? And for me, that was, again, uh, helping other people build their skill sets and moving into a more of like a, a soft skills role. To be honest, mm -hmm. like as a as an art director, like you're not doing art all the time, right? You're you're running meetings, you're looking at like people's schedule and trying to piece together this big puzzle. So for me, that's a completely new challenge, and it's it's kind of like again reinvigorated uh, my love of the game almost. Um, mm. it's, it's just something different, and who knows? I, I think one big mindset that I've kind of trained myself into is like the second I kind of stop enjoying that stuff, it's okay to go be a, a level artist or a lighter again like i don't care what if, if people look at my linkedin and be like well you were an art director and now you're <laughs> now you're like a senior level artist like what happened like did you get fun <laughs> you experience, like so many people are worried about how people perceive their resume or whatever it's man chase happiness so if it is few years i enjoy yeah. being an art director and then all of a sudden i'm missing making environments Maybe I'll, uh, you know, go back to being a level artist or just start doing crazy environment art tutorials where I'm just making, you know, find a way to make a living doing that. Like removing that uh, idea of what other people should think of me has been huge because like I'm just going to from now on do what I enjoy doing. And the second I stop so, enjoy doing it, I'm going to go do something else. So question on that, actually. So if let's say you did start to not enjoy art directing as much, like you could still use your personal time to work on those like the level art and the lighting art that you do enjoy? Or do you think like pure happiness is like if I'm spending part of my nine to five doing something I'm not really enjoying, I might as well just substitute it. To yeah. Well, for me, it's, uh, it's, it's like the eight, the eight hours in the tank of gas. Right. So like if, yeah. if I'm doing something I don't actually enjoy for six hours a day, chances are I'm not going to actually have the energy to go do the things that actually do make me happy. And I'm going to kind of default into like, Oh, it's, that's a lot, you know, I'm, I'm kind of drained. I'm just going to go watch Netflix or play video games. Um, and I mean, that's, that's totally fine to do. Like you should never feel guilty if you're feeling completely drained going and doing something that just allows you to recharge. Right. Like I tell a lot of artists, to be honest, uh, I think a large majority of students think they want to be in the game industry. So they, they try and go super hard, but they actually enjoy playing video games more. And I, mm. I, I tell them, you should probably get that awareness developed. Maybe you should actually be like a Twitch streamer. And instead of spending four years developing uh, a skill set to get into a job that you only enjoy doing maybe for a year because you think it's going to be good money, if you spent four years developing the skill set of building an online audience on Twitch, chances are you could make a at least an entry-level game industry salary doing that. It's probably. having that long-term perspective and actually going after what you really enjoy doing. Because I think a lot of people sit there and think, Oh, I don't. I don't want to be a Twitch streamer, even though I really enjoy being, you know, playing video games more than I enjoy making them, because it's either going to be too hard or you know, there's so much competition. 
well, spoiler alert, there's a lot of competition to get into the game industry as well, yeah. right? So you might as well spend your time doing something you actually enjoy. And then by doing that, you'll probably increase your chances of actually making money at it. Awesome. Uh, that's some really good advice there. So we have got a couple of questions from uh, some of our Patreon supporters that we're hoping to ask you guys. For sure. Uh, so first one from Katerina. She says, a lot of people suggest it's important to spend a significant number of outside work hours improving skills and building a solid portfolio to get into the industry. What advice would you give someone who's trying to break in but spends nearly all their t- free time at their desk? So we've got someone who's looking to get into the industry, but they're already spending all their time trying to work on stuff. What can they actually do? Or how can they maximize that time? I guess it's probably the best way of phrasing this. It's, it's, we've said yeah. it the whole time through this. It's being self-aware. Yeah. Like, look at your portfolio and go and like, I, I'll, I'll use me as an example. When I uh, had my first portfolio review, it was like, I had that one Egyptian piece um, and a couple of sci-fi pieces. And when I had Jeremy look at it, he went, uh, your materials really hurt you. Like, you clearly don't understand materials. I spent the whole of 2018. I didn't apply for a single job. I only did materials. And it's like, by the end of it, I fully had a really good grasp of it. It's like, I you have, have go on. Would you have noticed that without the portfolio? So if Jeremy never reviewed your no. portfolio, for example, would you have just continued aimlessly? No, because I only got my portfolio review because I saw him Twitch stream and I wasn't really paying too much attention. Um, and I saw like portfolio reviews and I was like, you know what? This guy's going to prove that I was good and like I'm just struggling to get a job. And he looked at it and he was like, actually, your material is really bad. Your props are bad. Like, you don't, sh- there's no direction in this portfolio. And I was like, ah, shit. Okay, it's like the big slap in the face, wake up call. But it's led, like, this is what I mean like, as well. It isn't like, this is a one-man job where I went from where I was to where I am now, all of my own work ethic. It's like, no, I had tons of people from the outside advising me. I got in contact with people like Tim, Ben, all these kinds of people saying, and they all gave me feedback and direction to enable me to do this. Like, I was enabled by them. So... One, obviously, I think actually maybe we've been speaking our self-awareness so much. Build a decent network, like as in friendship circle. I have, I'd say, three, four groups of art friends who support me, who help me, and I help them. And I can always go to them for some feedback. Because when you throw your feedback out to discords, you get, it's like, um, if you throw your... Yeah, it's your reputation, but it's more that like, they will be honest with you. When you actually have genuine friends and genuine relationships with people who will be honest... I mean, a small story, like Ben Wilson, I was, I was before I started the counterplay, I was like, I was applying for a studio. It was taking a while, but I hung all my hopes on the studio because I was previously off on the job room. And I was getting into a really, like mentally, I was like really getting down on myself and getting frustrated. And everyone else around me, like who I'd spoken about, who were like sort of social friends were like, oh, I'll be all right. Don't worry. I'm sure it'll be fine. Ben was like, dude. Go talk to other places. Like, why are you treating these people like they're the best studio in the planet? Like, go speak to people. Go apply elsewhere. Like, do yourself a favor. Did it, ended up working with Counterplay, and it worked out best for everybody. And it's like, he was honest enough as a friend to say something I maybe didn't want to hear at the time. And that's from developing a genuine relationship with a guy. And that's actually probably a bit of advice. I mean, we can talk about the objective, obvious stuff of improving your portfolio, all that kind of stuff. Develop your, your circle of people you hang around with because that will probably have much more of an impact on your, your your career than just you looking at your portfolio in like one frame of reference going, I need to do this, this, and this. Yeah. Like the people outside will help you the most. So like, yeah, the, the portfolio review is is a, a great 
thing for sure because people will kind of point out the things you probably don't see. Um, one of the, one of the big things I I find a lot of students kind of suffer from in the beginning um, is it's two big things really. Is first is the lack of patience. <laughs> so like they yeah. think, oh, I have to get a job in the next six months. Like I have to have a job, otherwise I suck. And that's not just true. It might take one person a couple of years to get their first job. It might take like for me when I when I had you know I was I'm a self taught artist, so I picked up learning 3d in high school and then basically it took me six years from the day that i opened 3ds max to the day i got my first job so it's it's a long you have to have that long-term perspective and being impatient about it is going to make that process extremely painful um and then the other thing i find a lot of students usually suffer from um and sometimes this is also driven by a lot of just the the course the way the courses are structured is shiny object syndrome where it's like (laughs) this week i'm gonna make a character this week i'm gonna make a vehicle this week i'm gonna make an environment and that lack of focus is means you spend like two years spinning your wheels in the mud and if you don't know what you want to do then that that's that's great is like go and try and make as many different things as possible and figure out what you actually enjoy doing and some people would say oh that's a waste of time like i'm not getting closer to getting a job it's like yeah you're figuring out what you actually enjoy doing because when once you lock into a job you're going to be doing that eight hours a day so you hopefully you better enjoy doing it right so there is that that dabbling period that almost everyone needs to go through to figure out what they enjoy mm-hmm. doing for me once i figured out i wanted to be an environment artist i locked in on that and that's all i spent my my hours at the desk making is environment work and uh when you kind of put all if, if think of it as like you're building a character in an rpg uh, if you put, if you want to be like smashing through walls, put all of your like experience points into the strength bar, right? Like become mm-hmm. like a warrior. If you enjoy doing magic, like build yourself a wizard, rather than like those characters that are just kind of evenly distributed. They're all their experience points. They kind of just end up being very blah, and which is like a lot of student portfolios when they're learning everything for the first time. Their portfolio is a big mishmash of everything. And it, which is cool because it shows that you're learning, but it's everything in your portfolio is something you've done for the first time, which leads to very middling returns because it hasn't, it doesn't show mastery of a specific skill set, right? Like chances are, if you want to work at a studio, it's going to be, a, especially as the complexity of games increases, it's going to be a, a more specific role. And I know that there are jack of all trades out there. Usually there are a lot more senior people that have been doing everything for a long time. Um, but if you if you want to if you're starting out and you want to get a job in the industry as quick as possible, it's better to refine your skill set so that when you apply to a job that's specifically asking, "Hey, we need someone to do level art," it's like that's all they don't care if you have characters in your portfolio. And if you spent the last six months building characters on the side as well as environments, then that's just another six months that could have been pumping energy into becoming a better environment artist, or vice versa, right? Like a lot of people are like, "Oh, there's more, I really want to be a character artist, but there's more environment jobs out there, so I'm going to kind of hedge my bets and build some environments too to have in my portfolio, and then both just kind of look, you know, the best way to do it. right? So I, anytime I'm looking to hire a level artist or a material artist, chances are I want that to be what their portfolio is all about because then I feel like I'm getting a good deal. Someone has mastered that skill set; that's what they're super passionate about and they're not like i'm gonna try and sneak in through the side door as like a prop artist and then become a character artist you know what i mean like i I, if i was an outsourcer i would want to hire people that was excited about building props um so yeah long, long story short those it's it's not how many hours you spend at your desk it's how you spend those hours and reverse engineering your end goal of where you want to be um like i recently had a one-on-one call with a, a student um it was like, I really want to work at Respawn. And I'm building this kind of, uh, you know, 
ancient medieval environment or something like that. And I was like, if you want to work at Respawn, look at the games that they're making. You should probably have a Star Wars scene in your portfolio. And he was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that for my next project. And I'm like, well, for sure. I'm, like Jedi Fallen Order was like a big success. Chances are they're going to be working on a sequel, right? If you can show in your portfolio that if that's the studio you want to work at and you, your portfolio clearly shows that, that's just another notch in, in, in removing red flags from the HR person when they're looking at your portfolio. They're like, oh, we need, we're working on Star Wars. We should hire, oh, this person has a cool Star Wars scene that looks like it could you know, be up to the quality of the stuff we're making. That's an easy hire. Some really good advice in there. Yeah, I think the the idea of um, that you talk about the the kind of MMO mindset of min maxing is something that probably a lot of students don't do. Where you're until you get that first job, you're better putting all your points into one thing than spreading them. Um, yeah, because you'll be so much better at that thing. There was kind of a, an art station learning course that, that touched on it a bit. One of the quite early ones where um, they're talking about if you get there's like a there's like a line and that line is good enough someone will hire you if you are over this line in x thing you're over this line in lighting you'll get a job as a lighter if you just spread all of your skills across everything you'll never be over that line in anything yeah, well you if can get not- over that line it's just going to take you 10 times as long cuz you have to, <laughs> it's like you're trying to raise all the boats with the with the water going up rather than you know just being like i'm going to put all of my resources and just completely blast this gauge up through the roof yeah, you're right. Really, the biggest resource is time. That's a good mindset. That was the pre-industry one. That's my one. The one that I know exactly which bit yeah. you're talking about. Chapter and like two or three. To me, like yeah. I, I still see people posting online of like, well, you know, smaller studios, they, they'll they'll be more open to hiring general generalists. I'm like, for the next couple of years, do you see how complex games are getting? Like, mm-hmm. even small studios are having to, you know, as complexity goes up, specialization is like is niching down, right? Like that's why you see like people that are hired specifically as a like vegetation artist or a Houdini destruction artist, like even indie games, the quality bar of games is just exponentially doubling every generation, right? Like the things are just getting so complex now that you need to hire people that spend all of their time focused on this one problem and solving it. Yeah. You want the, the best or the best that you can get in that one specific thing. Yeah, like literally a studio when they're looking to hire, what they're actually saying is, we want to find the best deal we can to solve this Mm -hmm. one problem we have. They want to feel like they're getting a good deal. And if you can be like, I'm an expert at lighting, I'm like, I don't have any industry experience, but my work speaks for itself. They're going to feel like they're getting a steal of a deal. If like, you know, your skills are above entry level and for them, that's just everyone that I know that has like hit senior level, uh, execution in their work as a junior is hired and working like it's just a no-brainer because they get snapped up so fast because mm. the studios are like this is an insane deal and uh yeah i mean there's the whole argument of like then why aren't they paid like a senior but for me it's like your experience is almost a multiplier of your salary right yeah. so the more experience you have the faster you can usually solve those problems and get Whoa. work done with less revisions right so that's why their seniors are paid more um but the end result really should look very similar it comes to what we said earlier. It's like they may be a great artist, but a very good game dev. That's why they're they're salary don't respect it. The people who are senior, they've shown that they are good game developers rather than just a good artist. Yeah, and there's so much to learn more of just like make it look good. It's like okay, well, here's ten reasons why we have to do things for performance considerations. Oh, here's uh, you know how we, you know, 
work in meetings and do reviews and stuff like that. Like, all of that is a whole other skill set that you don't really learn until you're in the industry. And those are the skills, like, again, soft skills kind of side of things, like learning how to communicate on a team, how to use Jira, just having that experience that you can do things a lot faster. You can't really develop those skills until you've been in the industry. So, like, that's why seniors are, you know, a, a paid a higher level. They're not necessarily paid um, for the same end product. They're paid because they can get there a lot faster. Exactly. And with, with less less micromanagement from 10 other people. Yeah, the micromanagement part, I think, is a super like important uh, aspect of what you're saying. Yeah, because like it, I mean, at the end of the day, like if a junior can get to the the results of a, a senior, um, that that's that's the ideal, right? But it, maybe it takes three other people mentoring them and, and like taking time away from doing other tasks to help them with revisions or help them with the pipeline and stuff like that. So I mean, that's the trade off that you're making as a studio when you hire uh, someone that has no experience, right? You're like, okay, I know I'm going to have to actually dedicate a fraction, you know, a portion of these three people's time to help this person develop. And that's the investment that you're making because you're basically saying, well, if this person stays with us for, you know, two years, they're going to really get all of that internal help and support and develop them into uh, a better artist. Right. So, and then some studios are, there's that, that quote of like, what if we hire this person and train them up and they leave us? And it's like, yeah, but like, what if, if it's like, we don't, right? Like someone else is going to do that. Um, and well, how does the quote go? The quote, they're, isn't they're it like, gonna, God, that quote goes a certain way. Is it? What if this person leaves? We train this person and leaves. It's like, yeah. What if we don't train him up and he stays? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's, that's exactly what I was thinking. Of. And then it's like, yeah, like you, you want to avoid that too, right? So it's, man, it's it's again, the the job market is a very complex thing, right? Gotta say though, to this day, I still barely understand how to use Jira properly. <laughs> I, I don't think anyone anyone does. Like, no, I hate Jira so much. Man. Program. There's probably so much that you can do in there that. Uh, you know the developers are like why is no one using this feature yeah that's actually the whole of like, the no like, like Jira. dashboards right so <laughs> and we have one other question uh, from patrons from someone who think you know tim um peter tran has asked oh, yeah <laughs> i've worked with peter much yeah you worked together at Tuke, right uh yeah we've worked together at Tuke in the past and a uh, super talented guy for sure yeah he's phenomenal work. he's all right and, <laughs> <laughs> so peter has asked you'll listen to this alex so we'll hear that uh, he's asked how do you how do you avoid plateauing and um how would you kind of get to the next level so i think that's that's something that a lot of people um who are perhaps in might encounter but even this can apply to people who you know are outside like how how do you actually get that level up chase discomfort <laughs> like uh, the second you start feeling really comfortable, if if your goal is to improve, uh, you should always slightly be outside of your comfort zone and be not terrified, but like, oh, okay, this is uh, going to be challenging. Um, the second that you kind of can go onto autopilot, then uh, that's a recipe for for coasting, which again is, is okay for some people, and some people it's totally fine to plateau. They don't want to, they don't want to go any further. They just want to, you know, make their salary, do their eight hours, and go home. Um, but if if your goal is to really, you know expand your your skill set as an artist chase discomfort take tasks that seem slightly a little bit more challenging than you're comfortable with um reach out to mentors and just basically put yourself in a position to always be learning i think you can also uh if you look at like it use okay this is like a like a gym rat saying this but like if you think of like if you're in the gym when you plateau at the gym like say your bench first gets to like 100 kg and you want to go up like you want to climb but you can't you plateau well you don't just keep doing like smashing your face against a brick wall 
on the 100kg, you go, okay, maybe I'll improve the strength of my triceps. Maybe I'll, And you go on is slightly supporting things. And then when you come back to the main thing again, you've ended it, you almost naturally just progress anyway. So like if you treat environment art, I'm plateauing on environment art. I feel like I can't really, I'm not really going any further my level art and I'm struggling. Okay, maybe you should like look into something a little bit different. Maybe you look into procedural tech. Maybe you look into material art. Maybe you look into lighting and really delve into that rabbit hole of them fields. When you come yeah. back to the broader scheme of environment art, you just jump up naturally not without even thinking about it. The stuff you've learned from the sideways things which just naturally find their way into your main craft. A hundred percent. The sideways things, that's exactly what I was about to talk about. And even, okay, so, so this totally relates exactly to Peter because I, you know, I see his artwork all the time. Um, so I know like when he first started his career, he was really focused on environments and he got super good at lighting environments. Recently, I've seen him take a step to the side and start doing more character lighting based pieces, mm. which is going to improve his overall understanding of lighting in general. And that, you know, so characters uh, and environments, when you're lighting both uh, and then, you know, cinematics and stuff like that, that's how you evolve as an artist. So I can already see him chasing things that are not his, you know, I'm just going to do another environment. So I, I would say, uh, Peter, if you're listening to this, you're, you're already well on the right track on, on doing that stuff. Um, but yeah, there's, there's often a lot of horizontals in your chosen career where you can kind of augment and, and uh, you know, snap onto to what you're doing. Um, for me, that was like, improving my soft skills to actually understand teaching by, by learning how to teach 3d stuff uh it actually helped me improve my skill set and find flaws in my own uh workflows and stuff like that too right because i'm like oh if it's taking me 10 minutes to explain something that should be done in like two minutes then maybe there's a problem there right so it can often be like almost like you're building a big lego thing and you just build a small piece off to the side and then you snap it on and uh all of a sudden you have a, a, lot, a lot more of a, a cool project right very nice so I think that's, uh, we've gone, we've gone on for uh, an hour and a half now. So I think that's probably a good time to start wrapping it up. Um, so thank you so much to uh, our two guests today, Alex and Tim for joining us. And thank you to Kem and Luan for being here. Um, and thank you everyone for listening in. If you want to get more EXP, check out the website, follow us on Twitter and join the discord, join in the great discussions there. Uh, Luan, is this your point where you're going to jump in with a random question? <laughs> I can do that, sure. Um, I actually thought about this a little bit. Um, I'm curious as to um, what point, like what game, video, movie, whatever it is, what inspired you to kind of just go on and chase your game career? doesn't have to be like a huge thing. Just like, was there like something that really inspired you? Here's a war one. Mm. Gears of War one. Damn. Yeah, I knew I was interested in games. I didn't know what. I knew I just liked games up you know, through secondary school, and then I played Gears of War one, and it's the first time I really fell in love with an environment, like the actual environment. For, up until that point, I just played the game objectively, and then I played Gears of War, and I fell in love with like the locusts, like um, visual design. This kind of like uh, industrial but royal feel to like everything. The like grounded weightiness to all the weapons, and I started thinking past the game at that point. I was like looking at the design and how they made stuff, and I was, it it really sort of just it tapped into a part of my head which I hadn't looked into. Like I played games my whole life, you know, I loved games like Ratchet and Clank and Halo, and I loved them, but it never really like it just didn't trigger anything to me. But then I played Gears of War, and I was, I spent myself I, before I even got involved in games, I was looking at walls, textures, design. I weren't playing the game. The game moved on. Like I ran back into the level past world games are dead and i was looking around like oh this is a cool space like look at that little interesting detail 
is it was kicked in the head for me when I played Gears. Yeah, for me it was probably Metal Gear Solid One on PlayStation One. Uh, oh, so that that was a, a big peek at what things were going to eventually become, uh, and probably Jurassic Park as well. I mean, that was like, oh wow, you can really do things with computers. Yeah. Uh, and then also when I was in high school, um, you know, playing Counter Strike and suddenly having access to the Hammer Editor and be like, oh, this is how you can actually build a level and have something you can run around in. So that that kind of clicked for me. Uh, I, I'd say one of the weirdest things is back when I was you know in high school, I used to play the old like SOCOM games on PS2. And oh, the first, I remember, like the first the first title I worked on was like SOCOM Confrontation on PS3. So not apparently not a super amazing game according to all the reviews, but that was such a weird thing. And I, I have some friends that have had this too happen to them too, where it's like before you're in the industry, you you play a certain franchise and you look it up up to it as like, wow, like this is crazy. And then one day you work on that franchise and it's like you really see the behind the scenes it's almost like looking behind the curtain um, because it's like, I, I know one of my friends, uh, uh, he worked on Gears of War uh, 4 and 5, right? But back in the day, he's like, man, Gears of Gears of War on, on Xbox, like, wow, that's... He's like, and then he, has, he said oh, one day he worked on that franchise. It's like your whole career advances and then one, all of a sudden, one day you're working on something that you used to like fawn over, which is crazy. It's just a really weird feeling. Yeah, you get I, get I, I don't want to get to that stage. I don't... I like... It's one of them ones I feel like I'd get in my own head working on. If I ever had the opportunity to work on Gears, I think I would be thinking too much about the fact I'm working on Gears rather than yeah, the fact that there's that's, that's like God of War, right? Like, I, I love, love, love it. Love everything about the art style, everything. But I think also, you know, if you work on something for so long um, and see all of the, the inner working, mm. like for Far Cry, like I, I loved playing Far Cry 3 and then I worked on Far Cry 4 and all of a sudden playing any other Far Cry since then, like I know the exact like level designer mentality, like why things are where they are and stuff like that. So it kind of, it, t- it takes the shine off certain things. So as much as I would love to work on like something like God of War one day, I'd probably be like, eh, there's certain games that I just want to play and enjoy with like a blind experience. See, for me, there's no question about it. It was uh, Halo Combat Evolved. There was something about <laughs> how that environment came together with the music and the visuals and just the story, and that kind of pushed me over the edge. I was like, wow. Like I, I was like, like you said with Gears of War, I was walking around paying attention to, to everything that was going on, to looking at like little bits of the environment. I was like, ooh, this is interesting. I wonder how I can make this. And then the question starts popping up in your head. It's like, okay, maybe there's a course. Maybe like I can look at the programs that they use to make this and try something new. That that's gonna be the most iconic sound, like inspiring soundtrack. I know, like when I built <laughs> Halo Three. And menu bumps up and that the the opera is going. I get goosebumps still to this day yeah. when I boot up Master Chief Collection for the first time. I was like, oh, that should be the that should be the podcast theme song, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like a copyright strike straight away. <laughs> I see your game, Cam. You're trying to write me off here. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Quiet to record it. We can just do it here now, all of us. <laughs> all right, brilliant. So thank you once again, guys, for joining us. Um, it's been a great discussion. And thank you, everyone, for listening in.